People love stories, don't they? From a young age, people love stories. They love to hear stories. And the more details that are in a story, the better. When my kids ask me to tell them stories at night, um, and if my, my creative juices are just at an all-time low and it's, it's more general and it doesn't really go anywhere, it doesn't take long before they say, Dad, that's boring. Tell us a better story than that. They, we like details, details of people, details of places, details of events, and so forth. And good stories, what they do is they attract our minds and they capture our hearts. They have the power to do these things. And if a story is actually true, then it's the best kind of story of all. Not only does it capture our minds and our hearts, but it's a true story. Like this actually happened or it points to something that's true. And if that story happens to be in the Bible and therefore it's a, like an inspired story that's meant to be kept for us and passed down through the scriptures, then it is by far, it's over the top. Because it's not just a story that inspires us and captures our hearts, but it's a story that can change our lives. It's a story that's, that's meant to change our lives. That's what the Bible, the Bible is meant to change our lives. So we're going to look here at Acts 16, and we're going we're gonna to look at stories, stories of three people that were converted. And these are great stories. They're true stories, and they're in, author- they're in Scripture. So they're, they're stories that are meant to change our lives. And actually, these three people that we're going to look at today, they are, as far as we know, the first three converts on the continent of Europe. Paul traveled from Asia, and he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel there, and he traveled across the Aegean Sea into modern-day Greece, in, into the, the town of Philippi. So let's, let's meet these three converts. Let's meet these three, let's look at these three stories. The first convert was an unlikely woman named Lydia. Verses 13 and 14 say this here in Acts 16. On the Sabbath day, on Saturday, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul had said. Let's stop right there. Lydia was a business owner. She was a business owner from Thyatira, which again was across the Aegean Sea back in Asia. Thyatira was known for their red dyes. So she was a seller of purple goods, things that had been dyed in Thyatira and sent to Philippi. So she was from from Asia, traveled over to Europe and Philippi and was a seller of these goods. Lydia was probably wealthy. She was probably very smart. She was industrious. She probably was well-known and well-respected. And she was religious. Okay, so she was wealthy, smart, industrious, well-known, well-respected. And she was a religious person as well. Verse 14 says she is a worshiper of God. But we know that she wasn't a follower of Christ yet. So she probably was following the, 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 the religion of the Jewish people without converting to Judaism. And here's something amazing this passage says. It says, as Paul spoke, we see this really important phrase. 
that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. The words pay attention means to give serious attention and to bring to oneself. So it's more than just common courtesy, right? When, I, when I'm speaking to my kids or, or when we learn to give presentations in school, not only do we give the presenter things to work on, but also those that are listening, right, to be courteous listeners. Lydia was more than just being courteous. She, the Lord gave her the ability to pay attention, to focus in and bring to herself what Paul was saying. So what does this mean that the Lord opened her heart? It means that God gave Lydia the supernatural ability to understand and respond to the gospel by repenting and believing. Remember, she was a worshiper of God, but she wasn't a believer in Jesus. And yet God gave her this ability to to, to understand and to believe the gospel. The New American Standard says that the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. You see, a natural person or a person that hasn't been born again yet, the Bible says is unable to respond to the message of Christ apart from God doing something in their heart. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man, which is the man apart from the Spirit of God, the person who's not born again, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them. He is not able to understand them. So as Paul spoke of Christ to this group of women, the Lord gave Lydia this supernatural ability to understand what was being said, not just cognitively, right? But to understand and to bring to herself, to say, I need this. She began to see her need and Christ as the meter of her need, as the Savior and Lord that he is. Something similar to this was said in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, when, Jesus, when it says of Jesus, he was with his disciples after he rose from the dead, and it says he, was taught, he opened the scriptures to them and was teaching them and showing himself in the scriptures and the law and the prophets, and it says this, the Lord opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you, you understand, don't you, that, that we need the Lord to open our hearts and minds in order to be saved? And that's what happened to Lydia. The Lord was, was after her, was pursuing her, and opened up her heart to respond. Lydia understood. She believed. Verse 15 says she and her entire household were baptized. That's conversion number one. The second convert we find here in Acts chapter 16 is is a very, very interesting person. Person desperate. And she gets rocked by the gospel. Verse 16 describes her this way. As we were going to the place of prayer, this is Luke writing, who wrote the, the book of Acts. As we were going to the place of prayer, presumably the same place that they went before, down by the river, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. This person's very this girl is very different from Lydia, isn't she? Lydia was wealthy, well respected, well known, business owner. This young girl was a wreck. 
absolute mess, you probably couldn't have gotten any lower on the social status, social ladder than this girl. She was young. She was a slave. Therefore, she was poor. She was possessed by demons. She was a practitioner of the occult. That's all about to change. It's all about to change. Verses 17 and 18 say this. She followed Paul and us crying out. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. That sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds like she's preaching the gospel. Sounds like she's saying true things. And I suppose she was. But Paul saw through it to the demon that was possessing her. And it says this in verse 17. She kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. What she was saying was true, but but apparently it was a distraction. It was distracting people that Paul and Barnabas, not Barnabas, Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke and the others, distracting from the gospel they wanted to bring to people. It was a distraction. Perhaps the demon was seeking to discredit Paul and Silas. Whatever the case was, after many days, Paul had enough with it. And he got very irritated. Not, he wasn't irritated at the girl. He was irritated at the demon that was wreaking havoc on this young girl. He was irritated at the demon who was seeking to distract people from hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And what Paul does is he acts violently against this demon. With violence. He acts, quite frankly, the way that Jesus did. Jesus never met a demon he liked. Amen? Never. Never liked any of them. He saw them as harassers, as accusers, as torturers, and he still does. Mark chapter 1, it says Jesus came on the scene, his public ministry. He went into a synagogue and was teaching there, and the people were amazed at his teaching. It was with, the, with authority. And then a man began to manifest that he had a demon and said this, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. Have you come to destroy us before the time? You're the holy one of Israel. And Jesus didn't say, amen, brother. He said, be quiet and come out of him. And the man fell to the ground, foaming at the mouth. The demon came out. He was set free. Just like this young girl. We don't actually see specifics about this girl putting her faith in Christ. All we know for sure is that the demon left her that very hour. Actually, the New American Standard says it left her immediately. It left her. I think we can infer a couple of things, though, from this story that we don't see explicitly, but I think we can infer them. First, Luke places this story between the stories of Lydia and the jailer. Now, chronologically, it probably belonged there. But I think it's also to show us that she, along with Lydia and the jailer, became a part of this, early, this new, brand new church in Philippi. Second, as soon as the demon was gone, guess what? Her owners realized their profit from her was gone as well. 
In other words, she was changed. She was, she was, a, new, she was a different person. The demon had left her, and I, I think the Holy Spirit had entered her. It's interesting, verse 18, when, when it says that um, Paul said to the Spirit, come out of her, and then it says it came out that very hour, and then it says right after that that her owners realized that their profit from her was gone. The words can't come out and came out and gone are all the same Greek word. It's where we get the, the word for exorcism. They had exorcised this demon. The demon was exorcised. And the owners of this little slave girl, their profit from her was exercised as well. It was gone. It was gone. They could no longer use her for their evil ends anymore. She had been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. There's a third conversion, however, and this is, this is a very interesting conversion as well. The third conversion comes on the heels of this young girl's conversion. When the demon was exercised from this young girl, her owners realized their source of income was gone, and they got angry, as probably would be obvious, and they had Paul and Silas brought before the city leaders and accused them of things like causing a disruption in the city and and telling them to do things that was not lawful for them as Roman citizens to do. And this got Paul and Silas beaten badly. It says that they were stripped, probably from their waist up, and they were beaten with rods. Paul says, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 12, as he goes through the list of ways that he has suffered for Christ, says he was beaten with rods three times. This is one of them. Okay, So the city leaders commanded that they are stripped from from the waist up and that they're beaten with rods. These rods would have split their backs open, would have been incredibly painful. Then the jailer was ordered to keep them safely in prison, which meant make sure they don't get out. Verse 24 says the jailer threw them into the inner prison, which is kind of like an extra special place for troublemakers in prison. And then the jailer, because of the instructions he was given, he put their feet in stocks, which is like, Really nice special treatment for really bad troublemakers in prison. Stocks were these wooden structures that were fastened to walls that your feet would be put in one end, and oftentimes there'd be stocks on the other end that would stretch your hands out, and it was a way of it was a way of torturing people, really. For Paul and Silas, all we know is that their feet were put in stocks. They probably were lying on their backs in this dingy first century. Jail in Philippi. But something very strange happens. Something very strange and very beautiful. Here's what verse 25 says. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Peter slept in prison in Acts 12. Here in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are singing. They're singing worship songs to God. And it says the other prisoners were listening. For some reason yesterday, that just hit me. It's like, they're listening. 
They, it wasn't, they weren't just passively hearing them sing. They were listening. What were they thinking? Well, we don't know for sure, but I can imagine they were arrested. What is wrong with these two men? They're insane. In his book called The Insanity of God, a guy named Nick Ripkin tells of a Russian pastor named Dmitry. He was thrown in a Russian prison. This was under Soviet rule. And he was in prison for 17 years. And day after day after day, every single day, he would stand up in his prison cell, turn to the east, raise his hands, and sing a hymn of praise to God. Every day. And the other prisoners would spit on him and mock him and curse him day after day after day. After 17 years, the prison guards took him. It was execution day for Dimitri. They were dragging him away to his execution, took him out of his jail cell. As they're dragging him through the, I don't know what you'd call it, the commons area of the prison, one by one, the other prisoners stood up, turned to the east, lifted up their hands, and began singing a song of praise to God. It's a song that he sang day after day. You can be absolutely certain that people are more impressed that you praise through your pain than when you praise through your pleasure. Always. These prisoners were listening. They were paying attention. So Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God while the other prisoners listen. They're paying attention. And here's what it says in verse 26 and 27. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that, the other, that all the prisoners had escaped. Well, not only did the other prisoners hear Paul and Silas, not only were they listening, but God was listening too, and he liked it. He loved their worship. It was a sweet aroma to him, so much so that he responds by sending an earthquake that shakes the foundations of this prison. All the prison doors are opened, and the bonds of all the prisoners are unfastened. And the jailer thought, oh my goodness, all the prisoners are gone, and I am dead See, back then, a Roman jailer, if a prisoner escaped, it meant he had to forfeit his life. He was executed. He was, he was dead. So the, the jailer thought, okay, all the prisoners are gone. The doors are all open. There's no way that they would stay here. And so he takes out his dagger. He's going to just thrust it through his own heart or slit his throat or whatever. And Paul runs out and says, Don't kill yourself. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Don't do anything. Now, I imagine the jailer is thinking, you're here? Why are you here? Why didn't you leave when you got a chance? You see, there was something massively different about Paul and Silas. They were nuts. They were crazy. I mean, 
when Peter had a chance to get out of jail, he did. Right? The angel came and opened the door and, and he left. I mean, I could imagine if you read chapter 12 and then you read chapter 16, the earthquake was from God to rescue his people so they could get out. Paul and Silas stay. And somehow convince the other prisoners to stay too. I don't know. That's crazy. There was something different about these two. Well, the jailer comes out. I mean, it says he is shaking. Probably because of the earthquake. I'd be shaking because of that. Probably because he almost took his life. I'd be shaking because of that too. But maybe mostly because these two guys are still here. And he says, brothers, what must I do to be saved? Yes, a billion dollar question. I mean, what must I do to be saved? Uh, it's interesting. There's this one commenta- commentary I, I found that said um, they think that what this jailer is asking is like, what must I do to be saved from further earthquakes? I'm like, oh no, I don't think that's what it's saying. What must I do to be saved? And I love Paul's answer. He doesn't say, try to be better. Stop being such a jerk. Then you'll be on your way to get saved. What does he say? Believe. Believe. That's it for this jailer? Believe? Yeah. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Verse 31 then says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and they believed, and they were baptized immediately. These are amazing stories of conversions. You know, through the book of Acts, you don't see a lot of, you see, there's a lot of accounts of they come to town, and there's a big riot, or there's a big, a lot of people are converted, and then they go to another town. There's not a lot of these stories where you, where you see individuals so, so I spent a lot of time the last couple of days thinking, why are these stories in the Bible? Why are they here? I mean, we, we know that there was intention in it, right? Because all scripture is breathed out by God. Or as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, that no prophecy, no scripture came by just the will of a person thinking, I think that sounds good. I'll put that down. No, they were carried along by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit intended for these specific stories to be here in Acts 16. And I just thought, why? Why? Well, we're to benefit from them and not just be kind of inspired or like, oh, those are neat stories and let's go have lunch. But we're to benefit from them in a way that really changes us, a way that impacts us. And so... I thought of at least four reasons why these stories are perhaps here for us. Number one, these stories show us that conversion is a miracle of God's grace. It is an abs- You know, the word miracle is thrown around way too flippantly sometimes. Miracles don't happen all the time. That's what a miracle is. It's something that doesn't happen or it's extraordinary. Conversion is a miracle. 
of God's grace. The story of Lydia may seem so unassuming, but God was pursuing her. I mean, I mean, think about it. We might, we might be tempted to say, well, of course she got saved. She was a seeker. She was a worshiper of God. Okay, but Luke doesn't allow us to go there. He doesn't. From a horizontal vantage point, perhaps, but that's only if you can't see what happened underneath and behind and what God was doing in the invisible world or in the invisible realm. We, but we get to see that because it says, the Lord opened her heart. You might say, well, yeah, she found the Lord, of course, because she was looking for him. It's like, ugh. If, 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 if the Lord didn't open her heart, if that's not here, and not a lot of other verses in the New Testament, we might say, okay. The Lord opened her heart. In other words, Lydia came to that meeting down by the river. I love this down by the river, don't you? I I mean, there should be a song about that. Actually, I think there is. Lots of them. All right. Anyways, they're down by the river. She came to that meeting at the river. And blind as a bat to her need for Jesus. Right? She was religious. She was a worshiper in some regard. She was at a prayer meeting. Okay. All that stuff sounds really good. Blind to Jesus. And if the Lord had not opened her heart, she would have left that prayer meeting blind to Jesus and her need for him. Salvation is a miracle of God's grace. For the young slave girl, it was a violent clash of kingdoms, the kingdom of of darkness and of Satan that she was controlled by was demolished by the kingdom of God and of Christ. And she was set free. She was not looking for salvation, though. She wasn't looking for it. It came looking for her. Or better yet, the good shepherd came looking for her. Remember, back at the beginning of the chapter, Paul concluded, when the door to Asia was shut, When the door to Bithynia was shut, when the vision came to go to Macedonia, he concluded, the Lord wants us to take the gospel there. The good shepherd wanted to go there. And he came for this young slave girl. The gospel was brought to a desperate girl in a desperate town. Salvation is a miracle. Conversion is a miracle of God's grace. Sheer miracle. For the jailer, it took an earthquake. God, or excuse me, Paul's example of concern for the jailer's soul and the proclamation of the gospel. In each and every case, we see that the conversion of these three people is a gift. It's a miracle that the Lord was pursuing them. I think of, I think of the, the passage, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. You could memorize this today. It's just the last part of the verse. But it's like the central verse for the whole Bible. All right, that might be an overstatement. But it's one of those central verses, all right? And it's, it, it goes like this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What was 
God was sending Jonah to Nineveh. Nineveh was this wicked town, brutal people. Why did God show concern for them? Because of his grace. Because of his grace. Jesus came to earth, right? God became man. He didn't cease to be God, but he put on flesh. He became a human being fully in every way. He lived the life we could never live. He died in the place of sinners to take their sin and shame and guilt and punishment that they deserve and rose again. And salvation is a gift that all we can do is receive. Just receive. That's all we can do. So, so do you believe today? Now, I, what I mean is not kind of passively, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, do you really believe like, like the Lord gave Lydia the ability to pay attention and bring to herself this truth? Do you believe like that? Do you realize that it was a gift from God, that God was hot on your trail to do that in you? Maybe you relate with a slave girl. And you remember well the salvation that came suddenly like a thunderbolt. Maybe you relate with the jailer and salvation, conversion just came in. God came and shook your foundations and saved you. Or maybe you grew up in a Christian home and all you really ever know is believing. In one sense, we are all saved in the exact same way. Now, I know there's some details, but underneath it, what we can't see with these eyes, we're all saved in the same way. Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, 5. Even when you were dead in your sins, God made us alive, excuse me, even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. Then Paul says, dash, by grace, you are saved. If you are alive today in Christ, it is because God came and pursued you. It's because he came after you. And he made you alive when you were dead in your sins. And this is something that should never be old news. Always good news. Always good news. Perhaps some here have fallen asleep to this fact. Just fallen asleep to it. Pray today. If if you've fallen asleep to, to, to the glory and joy of this truth, right, the truth of Psalm 35, I think, where David says, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered, whose sins will never be counted against him. Never. Isn't that amazing? If you've fallen asleep, blessed, another way you could translate that is happy. Happy is the man. If it doesn't make you happy for whatever reason, Would you pray today like David in Psalm 51? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So the first thing we we 
we learn from these stories is that conversion is a miracle of God's grace. The second thing, though, these stories show us that the gospel transforms people's lives, like changes them how they live. Stacy shared it earlier. Changed how she's living, relating with her husband and kids and others. The gospel can change anyone's life. And when someone comes into personal contact with the real, risen, powerful Christ, they will be changed. These conversion stories show us this. Now, you might suspect a spiritual seeker like Lydia, who is doing well for herself, may be a hard person to reach with the gospel. And humanly speaking, I suppose that's true. Pre-converted Lydia would have fit in well in Ankeny, I think. She was, she was doing well for herself. She was perhaps somewhat wealthy. She was smart, educated. She was respected and known. And she was on a spiritual journey. She had a little spirituality too. But she was lost. But when the Lord opened her heart, she was changed immediately upon receiving Christ. Immediately upon Christ coming and saving her, her life showed evidence that she was changed. First of all, she got baptized. She got baptized. Baptism is, um, well, it's, it's a visual representation of our union with Christ, death, his death, burial, and resurrection, right? Going down underwater and coming back up. But it's also a public declaration that I'm done with my old life and I'm following Christ now. And that's what she did. She got baptized. Not only did she get baptized, but she, she begged to, to show hospitality to Paul and his companions. It says she urged them to come to her house. Come to my house. Please come to my house. I mean, I just hear, please let me bless you. I have plenty of room. I have lots of food. Come to my house, please. And then verse 14, oh no, I'm sorry, verse 16 says that it says she prevailed upon them. I mean, I, she begged them. Paul's probably like, no, no, we'll be fine. We'll be t- t- totally fine. Please, I beg you, come to my house. Hospitality. And then at the end of the chapter, we see this young church is actually meeting in her home. It's amazing. The good news of Jesus Christ had changed her. What about the jailer? The jailer was probably a gruff, retired military guy just doing his thing. He didn't give a lick about Paul and and Silas when he threw them in prison. He took these two battered men with lacerated backs, stuck them in a dingy jail cell in stocks and left them there without a whiff of concern for them. You know how we know that? He went to sleep. It says the earthquake woke him up. He went to bed. He didn't care about them. He was a Roman jailer just doing his job. And yet after he meets Christ, what happens? He too gets baptized. He's baptized. He says, I 
am now a follower of Christ. Now, for a Roman to say that, it meant saying, maybe not with your words, but this change of allegiance in your heart from Caesar is Lord to Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Got baptized. He takes Paul and Silas and washes their wounds. Reminds me of the the Good Samaritan story, right? The guy's lying in the ditch and the priest and the Levite walk past, don't give any concern for him. The Samaritan comes by, sees him, shows compassion to him, kneels down close to him, washes their wounds, pours oil in them, takes care of them. This guy took care of them. Washed their wounds. Not only that, it says he brought them into his home and fed them. Back in those days, if you were in prison, the only way you ate is if someone you knew brought you food. He brought them into his home and fed them. And it says this in verse 34, that he rejoiced, this jailer, along with his entire household, that he believed in God now. His heart was now beating with heaven's joy. He was changed. He was a changed person. You know, I have concern for many professing Christians who give little or no evidence that they're born again. Little or no evidence. Concern for others? Nope, it's not there. Hospitality? Nope. Joy in Christ? Nope. Holiness? Who cares about that? God's priorities? Nope. Publicly professing Christ or publicly following Christ? Nope, it's not there. You see, we are not just saved to go to heaven when we die. We are saved to show that we are heaven-bound while we live here on earth. Right? That that's where we're going. That's where we belong. And holy, happy people are going to be there. These people were changed. Is your life being changed progressively to look more like Christ? And sometimes it's a, there's so much change in such a short period of time. And oftentimes... You need to take a step back and look at a year, five years, 10 years. Is there this upward trajectory that you are growing in Christ, that you are growing in godliness, that you are being changed? The gospel is power to transform lives. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus Christ saved us, redeemed us from all lawlessness, to create a new people in himself who are zealous for good deeds. Number three, these gospel sh- uh, story, excuse me, these stories show us the gospel unifies people that are very different. The gospel unites all different kinds of people. And quite frankly, you probably couldn't conceive of three different people than we have in these stories. Lydia was an Asian woman. She was from Asia. She was wealthy. She was God-fearing. She was well-respected. She was converted just through Bible teaching, right? just listening to Paul teach. The, 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 the young slave girl was probably a native Greek because Philippi, before it was a Roman colony, was a Greek city. 
She was a slave, so she was dirt poor. She was demon-possessed and was converted through a dramatic exorcism. The jailer was a Roman, blue-collar, probably retired soldier, perhaps part of the respectable middle class who experienced a divine earthquake which led to him almost killing himself and then getting saved. Yet for all these outward differences, and they're pretty striking, actually, all these outward differences, something much stronger and more durable now united them. Namely, that they were united in Christ by faith. People that are very different, different backgrounds, they look different, different quirks, they've struggled with different sins, etc. Now they're united by faith in Christ. In his commentary on this text, John Stott said, the head of a Jewish household during this time would use the same prayer every morning. And he would say three things. He would give thanks that God had not made him a Gentile or a woman or a slave. But here were representatives from these three despised categories, redeemed and united in Christ. It's amazing. It's what the gospel does. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You, if you are in Christ, you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel unites very different people. And number four, these stories show us that God has purpose in his people's pain. God has purpose in his people's pain. God, I think, was orchestrating all of these events for his purpose to extend the gospel. God, remember, God closed the door to Asia. They want to go to Asia, says the Holy Spirit forbid them to go. They want to go to Bithynia, says the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go. God sent a vision to Paul in the night. Paul saw, ah, this man in Macedonia crying out for help. He says, we're going to go there. That's where we're supposed to go. And what happens when they go there? It doesn't take long trouble. Trouble comes looking for them. And it seems like Paul knew what happened was part of God's plan. When Paul and Silas were, had the tar beat out of them, backs split open, probably like something you've never seen, gross, disgusting, beaten that badly, and thrown in jail. Remember what happens? They're singing. Let that land on you. They are singing. What gets into someone to do that? Confidence in God that he... Not that he's wringing his hand saying, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this happened. How am I going to get around this? No confidence that God is good and he's working through this for his glory and the good of his people. They're singing. But when they had the chance to escape, they didn't. They realized they were sent there to bring the gospel 
Paul had been told by the Lord Jesus, you are going to be a light to the Gentiles. And then the second thing he said was, and you're going to suffer greatly for my name. How would you like that? Paul knew this was part of God's plan. He must have realized that there was something more important God wanted to do than just release him from prison. There was purpose in Paul's pain. And there is in yours too. God is good. God is gracious. And I think Paul and Silas probably experienced the nearness of Christ more in that jail cell with their back split open than when they were having dinner at Lydia's house. He was near to them. He was near to them. Men and women in the Bible knew this, that God has purpose in our pain. And the most notable saints throughout the history of the church have known this as well. Think of someone like Joseph. Remember Joseph? From like Genesis 30 30 or so, 32, something like that, all the way to the end of Genesis is the story of Joseph. And it covers years. Joseph, he had it, man. He had it bad. He, He experienced rejection, betrayal, false accusations, abandonment from his family and others. And what did he say in, at the end of all of this ordeal to his brothers when they met him in Egypt? What did he say to them? You know what he says? God sent me here. That's amazing. God sent me here. You meant it for evil, he said to them, but God meant it for good to save many lives. That's what God was up to here in Philippi, to save many lives. Remember the the other prisoners heard or they were listening? I can't imagine none of those guys got saved. Maybe all of them did. Who knows? I don't know. The jailer did, though. God has purpose in our pain. Purpose to make you more like Jesus. Purpose to show others that Christ is more precious than a rock star marriage and a perfect job and a big bank account and impeccable health. Jesus is better than all those things. You might say, well, okay, but I have pain. What do I do? Do what Paul and Silas did. Worship. Worship. Later, when Paul wrote the letter to this church in Philippi, he penned these words, really touching on the main theme of the letter. He says this in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord, always. And again, I say, rejoice. If you are experiencing something terribly hard right now, tough marriage, a bad situation at work, chronic pain. By all means, do what you can to get help, seek the Lord, but worship. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in him. Turn your attention to the Lord. Now, this is different than just trying to look on the bright side of things. Or let's try to find something that's going okay in life that I can rejoice in. It's different than that. It's rejoicing in the Lord. 
the fountain of all life and joy that we will ever experience for all eternity. It's rejoicing in him. So rejoice in him. It's a command. Resolve to worship. Turn your attention to him. Say, God, I need you to show me how awesome you are so that you are my hope and joy. And like the prisoners, when they were listening, others, I'm certain, will take notice. And they're going to want to know the hope that you have. What is, this is different. This is, this is strange, strangely beautiful. What hope do you have? And God will show up. Well, let's close here. Verse 12 describes Philippi as a, as a colony of Rome. It says Philippi was a colony of Rome. It was conquered by, Rome conquered Greece and took over this town, Philippi, and became a colony of Rome. After the Holy Spirit, through Paul, visits Philippi, you know what happens? A colony of heaven is planted there. Paul wrote again in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is where? In heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We live here, right? But that's our true home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so... Churches, individual churches, the church at large is just that. It's a colony of heaven, little colonies of heaven. People who have received God's massive grace and demonstrate the life-changing power of the gospel and are united in Christ despite our past, our social status, our differences, and so forth. And all of this is orchestrated by a sovereign God who works in and through all things for his glory and for the good of his people. That's what we are. We are a colony of heaven. Isn't that amazing? Right here on planet earth. For God's glory alone. Let's praise him. Father, we worship you today. We give you praise.